Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today is Lee Sauls. Lee is a leading sales management strategist and an expert in hiring and onboarding salespeople. Through his sales management consulting firm, Sales Architects, Lee's has helped hundreds of companies experience explosive growth through the migration of their sales teams from people-based to process-based, and thus transforming them into world-class sales forces. We're talking to Lee today about his best-selling book, Higher Right, Higher Profits, The Executive's Guide to Building a World-Class Sales Force. In this book, Lee challenges us to shift our perspective from hiring salespeople to investing in revenue and teaches us what type of revenue investment is needed. Lee, welcome back to BizTalk. Thank you, Jim. So, Lee, on this topic of uh, hiring salespeople, it, it seems to never go away. Uh, you and I have been doing this for some time. And yet year after year, uh, we keep coming back to the topic. I heard it just last night. You know what? I can't find good salespeople. They're hard to find. And uh, and by the way, you find the right ones. They never work out. And it's just a real a roll of the dice and finding good people. Uh, you know, we've been hearing that for years. So in your book, you come at us and you say, well, hold on a second. We're not really looking at hiring salespeople, what we're looking at is an investment in revenue. So talk to our audience about that. Sure. So based on your your story from last night, I'll bet you it was never the company's fault when those salespeople didn't work out, right? It was always the salesperson. Absolutely. <laughs> well, because it's, it's like, that way. yeah, and I always say, well, what were they? What were they not doing? Well, they weren't committed. And uh, we had one the other day where the person said, uh, well, you know what? They really didn't make it because uh, they never took the time to learn what our product was. I thought, hmm, well, that's interesting. They with you eight months, and they somehow they missed the fact of what you were selling. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so to your question about thinking of the team as a revenue investment. So, Jim, let me ask you this: Imagine someone in your firm came in to see you today and said, "Jim, I've got this incredible idea." to grow revenue for us. It's going to be incredible for us. And it's going to cost $25,000 to implement that idea. What's it going to take for you to write that check? What do you got to see? Good question. What do I have to see? Well, first of all, I have to see kind of big picture. What, what's the outline of your idea? You know, show me the big picture. And if I buy into the big picture, then I'm going to want to see what the plan is. Now, how do we go about implementing this? And then I'm going to want to see some type of due diligence around what the ROI is going to be. You know, so typically, um, show me the idea, show me the plan, show me the details, and um, let's talk about when we can uh, get this up and running then. That's what I need to see. So with, with a lot of executives, you know, someone comes forward with that idea. The idea is interesting. The $25,000 cost knocks them off their seat, and they want to see all kinds of analyses and make sure you've done focus group stat- studies looked at the competitors to see what they're doing, and really understand all of this. And in a lot of cases, for that $25,000 decision, 
that that's made over several months introduced today but we've got to really look at all of this before we make that decision and write that check same scenario and you've got someone on your team getting ready to hire an inside salesperson right a junior level position base salary is twenty five thousand dollars in most companies maybe there's one interview yeah we like them let's bring them on board now if you contrast that salesperson you bring on a salesperson for one purpose right to drive revenue that idea the purpose drive revenue and in most companies there isn't that same level of circumspection same level of analysis when bringing on salespeople as there is if someone came forward with that idea and again twenty five thousand dollars number one is not the true cost of a salesperson that's just the salary and you're paying that every year secondly when you look at most salespeople that are being brought on teams, they're not being paid a base salary of $25,000, right? It, it goes significantly higher from there. So why aren't companies doing that? And that's the foundation of this book is transitioning from thinking of it as hiring salespeople to looking at it the same way as if someone had this idea to grow revenue for the company and having that same level of analysis and circumspection. Yeah, because in reality, you're probably talking about a, a fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar decision. Absolutely, that's an interesting perspective, Lee. I've never really thought of it that way. Because you're right, you're sitting there, and someone is, you know, saying, "Here's a twenty-five thousand or fifty thousand dollar idea that'll take several months to implement." But the upside is, you know, a million or two, right? So, Lee, based on your experience, why do we allow this to happen? I mean, at best, most companies have a five- to six-step process, and most likely it's a one- or two-step process, and let's go. And we're making these 50, 60, 70, in some cases $100,000 decisions on a two-step process. Why is that allowed to exist today? When it comes to the idea, it's just not seen the same way as bringing on salespeople. And, and I ask the executives, point blank, and they lay out that scenario, and I ask them why it would be different for them. And like you said, I hadn't quite thought of it that way. That's the most common response I get from executives. But as soon as we have this conversation, it ends with, but going forward, I am going to think of it that way. So for some reason, that there's some enlightenment that happens when you have that story contrasted of an idea with bringing on a salesperson. Let's talk about bringing on this salesperson because the next thing we hear or typically hear out in the marketplace is, um, you know, I, I need that superstar. I need that that person that's going to come in and, you know, really knock out the ballpark. Yes, the guy the other day, I says, well, what do you expect him to do? Well, it's like coming in here and learning our products and stuff and probably within 14, 15 months, I mean, they, they should be generating probably, you know, $3.2 million in sales. And I looked at him, I said, that, that's fine. I said, is anybody ever in your company history within 14 months been on track and or produced $3.2 million? Well, no, but that's what really we expect them to do. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. what is the, the part it is, uh, you have two camps here, or my, my, actually probably more than two, but one side is, uh, gosh, they're tough to find. Let's get somebody in here. They can fog a mirror and hope they make it. Uh, the other side is, no, we have this guy who worked for the competition and may even have sold directly in that territory. 
So should we be looking for these people that have worked for the competition and have that a direct experience? Yeah, you know, when you, when you talk about the competition, you know, there's this dream. It's a flawed dream, nevertheless, but it's a dream that executives have, which is I'm going to go recruit salespeople from our competitors, and this person is going to show up on day one, drop a million dollars of revenue on my desk. I will have no work to do to teach this person how to sell for my business. They're just going to go out and do it, and I'm, I'm going to master my golf swing. That's the vision. That's the dream. And, of course, rarely does that ever happen. What the, the mistake is that every sales role in every company is unique, and, and I'm guilty of, of this mistake my, myself several years ago. I built a sales team during the dot-com boom in the technology training industry, and this is when – Microsoft decided, you know, I'm not going to let Novell control the back office. And they created their own networking operating system, originally called Windows NT. And so I was in the technology training industry where as this new technology was getting installed, all these people needed training. And our, our business was just going gangbusters. And this one Friday afternoon, I get a call from a salesperson from one of our competitors. And I had heard some rumblings that this competitor was having some issues. And he was calling, representing himself and several other salespeople from that company, saying, hey, we want to come play for your team. And I actually, like in a cartoon, felt my eyeballs change into dollar signs. Got off the phone. I sprinted down to the general manager's office, told him about the conversation I just had. He pulls out expansion plans. We reforecasted our next three years' revenue. Now, mind you, we hadn't met the people yet. We're reforecasting. So we bring them all in for an interview, an interview. An interview infers that we actually listened to one word that these folks had to say. The reality is we had already written the offer letters. So we brought them in, rolled the story ahead three months. All of them were gone. They all failed. And whose fault was it? Mine. We never should have brought any of these people onto our team. See, we refer to that other business as a competitor, but our businesses couldn't be more different. And so we blindly brought these salespeople in thinking, instant success. Boy, we're going to grow our sales team. We're going to drive revenue. It's going to be fantastic. And so they come in, and, and you look back at this, and you go, you knucklehead, how did you do this? Because in their case, they were the let's make a deal cheapy guy. We were the high end, charging high prices for, uh, for our programs. They were selling by phone. We were selling in person. We were bringing people into our facility. They were selling to businesses. We were selling to consumers or, or career changers, those who wanted to enter the IT space. They were selling individual courses. We were selling comprehensive certificate programs. So you look at that and you go, how could you make that mistake? Well, businesses every day blindly look at the competition and say, boy, if we can bring those people over here, that's really going to be a game changer for us. The reality is you've got to take a comprehensive 360-degree look at that sales role for your company. And whether the person comes from within the industry or not, you've got to understand the factors that lead to success or failure in that particular role and evaluate every single candidate against those performance factors. And you'd have to be clear on what those performance factors are. Absolutely. 
Thanks for joining in on the conversation. Our guest is Lee Sauls. In addition to Lee sharing his expertise on hiring and onboarding salespeople, you can find other experts that have shared their wisdom with us here on BizTalk. Those are available as podcasts on our website and cover business topics in the areas of recruiting, leadership, marketing, performance management, sales and sales management, and, of course, personal development. You can download those podcasts from our website at biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. Lee, you made a comment to me that hiring a salesperson is an investment in your future revenues. And like any good investment, there must be some criteria by which we'd want to pick this investment. And so what do we look for when we're going to invest in a salesperson? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So often what companies do when they decide, okay, time to go hire a salesperson is they call you, right? And they say, go find me a great salesperson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a helpful scope, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so before you can ever consider candidates, and, and I mentioned, I started to talk about this in, in the last question, was, is that you've got to take a 360-degree look at the role and identify all the factors that lead to success or failure in it. And once you identify those, you put them what I refer to as a performance factor portfolio. So you list out all the factors that lead to success or failure in it. And then you've got to have a step in your evaluation process, or several steps for that matter, where you're going to contrast the candidate with those performance factors. Every single one of them, you have to have a means to evaluate. It could be that you write interview questions for yourself. Maybe there's techniques that you put into place so that you can evaluate those candidates against that performance factor. And, and I'll give you an example of, of a couple, things that aren't often thought of. So you've got this role, it's a B2B sales position, account executive role, and one of the things not often considered is where is the position based? Where is the office going to be? So, for example, if you say the office is going to be out of our corporate location, then you're evaluating a candidate who for the last 10 years has worked out of a home office. Now, I'm not saying hire, don't hire. I'm saying you need to explore with that individual if that office environment is going to be a situation where he or she is going to thrive. Because if for the last 10 years, working in a home office, a lot of flexibility, no one can see what you're doing at any given moment. Now you're at a corporate, different scenario. Flip-flop it. You're, the office is based in a home, and you have a candidate for the last 10 years who's been at corporate, accustomed to when, when he or she needs something, just walk down the hall and, and talk with anyone you want. And there's a lot of energy being in an office environment because you're around a lot of people and, and all of those kinds of things, and now you're talking about a different dynamic in working from a home office. Is that person going to thrive, be, be successful in a home office when they haven't been there? So that's an example of a performance factor that you want to explore because the worst-case scenario, worst-case scenario for a business is that something you could have known in the evaluation process, you wind up finding out three to six months into the relationship where either the salesperson or the executive says, this isn't going to work because you don't get to turn the clock back. That's lost dollars, lost time. So you want to make sure as you're evaluating these candidates that, you're looking at all the things that you can possibly know to make an informed, educated investment decision. I'll give you another performance factor. 
the sales manager's style, the management style. It's not right or wrong. It just is. So you have to identify that management style that you have as a sales manager and say, this is just, just the way I manage. So I've got to find people that will thrive, that will be successful under this management style. So, for example, if your approach is a macro-level management style, which is when the salespeople need something, they'll come see me. And, and a lot of times that comes up, uh, particularly if a manager has like 15 salespeople, so it's a lot bigger than uh, what's recommended, so you don't have all that dedicated time. And if you have a salesperson that needs much more hands-on management, again, our investment is not going to perform at the level we expect. If our management style is much more hands-on, where we get deeply involved in all the significant accounts, and this salesperson is, it really wants to be managed in a macro level where, you know what, I'm going to take care, I'm going to get things done, and when I need you, I'm going to come see you. So we know how that's going to play out, right? At some point, three to six months into the relationship, someone's going to be unhappy, and, and the manager's not going, right? And again, you don't get to turn that clock backwards. You know, that's interesting insight, Lee, because as you, as you were talking about that, I was just running through my head the myriad of things we take for granted, you know, such as you were, we're a mid-sized, privately held company where the founder is still heavily involved in sales. Our candidate came from a Fortune 2000. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I, I chuckle about that, but it's two totally different cultures. All right, so the, and that's just in in a brief conversation here. You've mentioned two now, three things. In, in your experience, how long is that performance factor list on average? Well, you'll wind up with probably if you really do this thorough analysis and, and in higher right higher profits, I lay out how to go about doing that. Well, that's step good because that's yeah. be my next question is yes, you know, how yes. do we do this? Yeah, so there, there's in the book three sections on on what to do to go through that. Uh, revenue investment 360 analysis, and you'll probably wind up with between 25 and 50 performance factors, but there, there's a couple of questions you have to ask yourself for each one of those. Number one is the level of impact that it has on success, because if it's minor, yeah, we're going to evaluate it, but that's not going to be a, a fatal flaw in a candidate. Um, and if it's major, then it, if you have a disconnect or a mismatch between the candidate and that factor, well, then you're going to have a moment of pause and say, boy, this probably isn't the right person for us. So that's, that's one question that you ask for each performance factor. A second one you ask is, what are you willing to teach? What are you not willing to teach? So, for example, and I'll, I'll give you another performance factor. Again, it, it's one that I often hear about on the back end, and, and Jim, I'm sure you get this too. You'll hear from an executive, my salespeople, I, you know, I see the proposals and the emails they send out. They're embarrassing to our brand, meaning they can't put two words together in a sentence in, in the correct fashion. And then I'll ask that executive, so tell me, when you were evaluating the candidate, how did you evaluate their writing skills? And there's a deafening silence because they don't. Well, if writing skills is a performance factor, that you've identified is going to have a major impact on success. So, for example, let's say it's an environment where you don't have a lot of templates. So there's a lot of narrative that the salesperson is going to have to write from scratch, a statement of work, executive summaries, 
email communication, pricing letters that they're going to have to create from scratch, well, then you've got to have writing skills on your performance factor portfolio, and you have to determine that level of impact it has on success. And then are you willing to teach writing skills? And most businesses say no. So if you're not willing to teach it, and it's a highly impactful performance factor, then you better have a means in the interview process, the evaluation process, to really look at the writing skills of a candidate. And then, Lee, it appears this is a natural extension that carries into this new person's employment. Now you have quantifiable things by which you can provide immediate feedback into their performance. Here's the, here's the 15 things we evaluated. Hey, it's been 30 days. Let's look at this list and see how you're doing. Well, that's exactly right. So you now know what the output of your hiring process is going to be because you said, okay, here is what that salesperson has to have to be successful. Now imagine you know, yourself being in the recruiting business. If a company had gone through this exercise and identified those performance factors and put that grid together, submitted that to you and said, hey, Jim, here's what you need to know to help us find the right people that will be successful on our team. How much easier is your job? Oh, night and day. In fact, that's what we do at Performance Group for that reason. If you spend all your time up front in the identification stage, let me tell you, the sourcing and finding stage, is, it just goes faster. It's not, it's not easier, <laughs> but it's faster. <laughs> well, but you know something? You, you, you mentioned something at the very outset when you were talking about a conversation you had last night and, you, and someone that was saying they couldn't find any good salespeople. Most common reason that I've found that they can't find the, the right people is they haven't done that analysis to determine what they're looking for. They don't know what that right person is. They haven't gone through this analysis like we're talking about here today. So they're blindly looking at candidates, looking for the, someone that's going to dazzle them, that's going to be this great salesperson where they've got no work to do, and the salesperson shows up and is instantly a success. Our guest on BizTalk is Lee Sauls. We're talking about his best-selling book, Higher Right, Higher Profits, The Executive's Guide to Building a World-Class Sales Force. Lee, let me give you real world. I was in a conversation with a branch manager the other day. They had found and selected what they thought was a great salesperson. And I said, that's fantastic. Let's talk about onboarding in the right way. And he looked at me and said, onboarding? I said, Jim, he says, we're going to put him on the phone for 30 days and see if he can make it. You know, sink or swim. So, Lee, how do you deal with this paradigm that still exists today that, you know, I was brought up through the, you know, sink or swim method. You know, I just jumped on the phones and had to go make it. Therefore, you're going to have to do the same thing. What would you be saying to that branch manager today? Well, if I was speaking with that branch manager, the the path that I would go down from what you're describing, I would guess that, the disconnect is the output of the hiring exercise, that process. His expectation is that someone who is uh, going to be receiving an offer from the company to join the team is a great salesperson. So they think that the hiring process output is a great salesperson. It's not. My argument is there's no such thing as a great salesperson. And, and you and I have talked about this before. And I always get taken a task on this. What do you mean there's no such thing as a great salesperson? And I can prove it. How many of these so-called great salespeople 
great track record, perfect look. They've done it before, and they failed in your company. If you believe in great salesperson and great salespeople, you must subscribe to one of two of the following given the failure of that individual. Either that salesperson showed up on your doorstep and completely forgot how to sell, or your company is the absolute worst company to sell for in the history of business. Which is it? Because you believe in great salespeople, so he's done it before, so we know we've got this great salesperson, quote-unquote, and he failed in your company. It can only be one of those two reasons. The issue is the word great. That word great isn't a description of the individual. It's a description of the relationship between that individual and that specific sales role. I mean, how many times, Jim, have you seen salespeople fail in one company, go someplace else, and become a rock star, or be tremendously successful in one company and be a dud elsewhere? So the output of the hiring process is someone with the potential to be great in that sales role, but both the company and that individual has work to do for that potential to become reality. So continuing with that revenue investment metaphor is you go through the hiring process so that you can identify in which individuals you're going to make a revenue investment. The onboarding becomes your way to protect that investment and get a high rate of return on it quickly. Lee, what is your definition of onboarding, especially as it relates to your sales force, and how is that different than another term we hear all the time, which is orientation? So when, when you come back to the output of the hiring process, which is someone with the potential to be great, you love their skills, you love their knowledge, you love their personality in, in the evaluation exercise such that you extended an offer. Onboarding is the bridge that connects potential with reality, takes those skills, that knowledge, that personality that the salesperson has, and teaches them how to apply them in this sales role. So when I, I, I get so frustrated when I see executives that say, well, you know, we just hired a great salesperson, as you described, Jim, we're, we're going to get him out on the street and on the phones and see what happens after a couple of days, and if he doesn't work out, well, then we'll go find someone else. So what you've done is taken that investment, and immediately put it into jeopardy. You know, a lot of times when, when you hear companies talk about, God, our people can't deal with the price objection or the price concern. Okay, so when did you teach them the corporate philosophy, the corporate approach to working through that issue? Or they can't sell the value. When did you teach them how to sell the value that your products and your company bring to bear? So that's what onboarding is about. It's taking the, what you love so much in that salesperson, you see that potential, helping it to become a reality quickly. So there's a curriculum part of this, meaning you're, whether you're teaching, but there's also an assessment part, evaluating them during that onboarding period to make sure that the teachings that you're providing stick. Quizzes, exams, simulations, etc. All right, well, my eyes just started to roll a bit, Lee, because it's like uh, week three and the big deal just came across my desk and I had all these plans to do this right along with my new guy, but if I don't close this big deal this for this quarter, we don't have to worry about onboarding anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in addition to that, we've had uh, 
our competition come at us with some deep price discounting that's got my sales team into a tizzy, and we got to address that. And not to say that uh, uh, the president wants us to start cross-selling this new product. And I want to do what now? I want to sit down and evaluate my new guy. So what, between, what, 8 and 9 p.m. at night? Well, first of all, the, the company, the executive team, if they buy into onboarding being a key part to protecting the investments and ensuring you get a fast, high return on it, when these other things come up, there becomes a delicate balance that, that comes into play, meaning, yes, we do need to run the business, we need to bring in those deals, but if we aren't going to do the things that will help our new salespeople succeed for us, then let's not even bring anybody on because we know we're going to be throwing dollars out the window. So there needs to be a commitment to the exercise. Or like I said, don't even bother bringing the people on because all you're going to do is get frustrated as you see a revolving door. So when we, when we look at bringing these folks on, we talk about assessment. It doesn't have to be overly complex. It could be meeting with them uh, once a week and going over the curriculum and asking them questions to see if they stuck. You can also use technology to support this, and you know, and, and Jim, you know, we don't have to get in that into that here today. But as you know, there's technological ways to also support the onboarding, so it's not as burdensome on the organization. So, Lee, if for someone in our audience is sitting here today and says, you know, I, I hear what Lee is saying, it's high time we get on this. You know, the stop is always in the start. So, for our audience' sake, what's the baby step, right? What's yep. the step we take to start moving in the direction? that you've talked about. So, and you're right. I mean, if you take the approach of saying, boy, I'm really intrigued by what I heard in this interview, and I'm going to go back to the company, and we're going to launch this huge onboarding initiative, this award-winning program, it's going to die on the vine. It's just too much to chew on. What I would recommend is look for the areas of your business where the salespeople are involved, and you say, you know, if we address these three areas, when we bring salespeople in, it's going to have a significant impact on the salesperson's success and thus our revenue. And start there. Address those areas first. Over time, you mature the onboarding so that as new people come in, they have an enhanced experience. So you don't have to go and take this global approach like we're talking about here today or what's presented in the book but rather look for those areas, those deficiencies that you have in your business, and really focus the initiative there, mature it over time. So what you're really saying is it still comes back to identifying the performance factors for the position, prioritizing those which are most impactful, right? Because if it's 15, really what you're talking about, we ought to take the top three, right, that are most impactful, now that we hire this person and make sure at least the top three get onboarded with them. Yep. Okay. Yeah. When you put it that way, it seems it's more digestible. So, Lee, when you look at an onboarding program for a salesperson, typically how long should that last? Yeah, for some reason, you hear three months or 90 days tossed out. All the, like all the time. I don't know where that ever came from. It's just like a, ni- it's a nice round number, I guess. <laughs> You know, because the nine has a round part to it, the three has two round parts to it. But what my counsel is to clients is 
identify the expectations that you have of someone who is described as having successfully completed your program. Have curriculum or training or education in place that ensures each one of those expectations is going to be met. The program should be long enough and intensive enough to ensure each one of those expectations is met. It could be a couple of weeks. It could be six months. Given what your expectations are of someone in the role, so if you think so, if you think of this in a continuum, you started by identifying the performance factors for the role. You you prioritized those. You identified what you're willing to teach, what you're not willing to teach. You evaluated candidates against those performance factors, so you know what the output is, what that raw talent is going to be when they arrive on your doorstep. The onboarding takes that raw talent and says, okay, here are the expectations we have of somebody in the role and teaches them how to apply those skills and that knowledge that they have in that role. Our guest is Lee Sauls. We're talking about his best-selling book, Higher Right, Higher Profits, The Executive's Guide to Building a World-Class Sales Force. So, Lee, when you look at an onboarding program for a salesperson, typically how long should that last? Yeah, for some reason you hear three months or 90 days tossed out. I don't know where that ever came from. It's just like a nice, it's a nice round number, I guess. You know, because the nine has a round part to it, the three has two round parts to it. But what my counsel is to clients is identify the expectations that you have of someone who is described as having successfully completed your program. Have curriculum or training or education in place that ensures each one of those expectations is going to be met. The program should be long enough and intensive enough to ensure each one of those expectations is met. It could be a couple of weeks. It could be six months. Given what your expectations are of someone in the role. Lee, you've helped design, implement, and execute a lot of onboarding programs with companies Let's talk about the ones that have been successful. What have they done right? Why have their programs worked? Yeah, and there were a couple things. The first thing was that they didn't start the onboarding exercise by developing curriculum because that really becomes daunting for a company because you can add curriculum forever. There's no end in sight. But what they did was they started by identifying success, meaning the expectations they had of someone who would be described as having successfully completed their onboarding program. And there's a methodology I present in the book, and I know, Jim, you've seen it, that no, do, use methodology. So no is information, do is an action, use refers to a system or a tool. And so you categorize each of those expectations in those three. And then for each of those expectations, you say, okay, so What's the education we're going to provide to ensure each one of those expectations is met? And how will we know that that knowledge, that mastery has been acquired? And that's where you get into the quizzes and the simulations and what have you. So the the companies that, um, when I, I go, wow, they really get it, are the ones that go about it in that fashion. So it's almost like reverse engineering onboarding. Start with the expectations. Identify how you'll know that the expectation has been met, 
and then your way of teaching someone the things they need to know, do, and use such that they can meet the expectations that you have. The reverse of that, the, the programs, they said yes, and it's just bombed. What were the one or two mistakes those companies made? Um, one is the fire hose treatment. Drown that new salesperson in material for a week and then have them go sell the value. Or the famous one, you've seen this, hey, you're a great salesperson, here's the phone book, now go sell. <laughs> Call me if you get something. <laughs> That's right. We'll be here. So th those are the, the common ones. You overwhelm them with so much that they don't acquire any knowledge, or they just take the approach that they don't need to do anything as a company to help their new investment succeed. Lee, biggest misperception about onboarding salespeople? Well, it comes back to that whole great salesperson perspective. We're going to bring on a great salesperson, therefore we don't have any work to do, that they're just going to show up, drop a million dollars of revenue on day one, and we're going to work on our golf swing on this side. Lee, if people want to learn more, obviously we can get them directed to the book Hire, Right, Hire Profits, you know, the executive guide to building a world-class sales force. How would they go about finding that? Uh, they can get it on Amazon. It's available both in uh, print and in Kindle. It's the number one rated sales and sales management book for the last several months, So, and that's based on the reviews of it. And, and I'm just so pleased uh, by the, the feedback that I've received on the book. Great. Lee, thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.